Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fitzpolitics, Mr. Watson. I am most certainly your host, Christian Watson. And today with me, I have a man who is about to unleash an intellectual salvo against one of the worst political tracks written in the past two years, a track that has inspired a lot of people, particularly on the left, particularly people who see race as an all-encompassing idea, to use it to browbeat people into submission. I am speaking of none other than Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, released in 2018, which basically posits in a few words that white people don't like to talk about race because it, some, it somehow harms or offends them, and it allows them to, and it would allow them to keep white supremacy intact in society. Now, if you're like me and you're thinking to yourself, well, that is a big generalization and that is a very you know, flawed statement. Well, according to D'Angelo and, and all of her followers, it's a statement that is uh, simply self-evident, that does not need any challenge, does not need any sort of dissection, and that should stand on its own. But I don't think that is true, which is why I have with me Mr. Jonathan Church, who is actually writing a book about this, and he is giving a very philosophical, rigid critique of this idea. Mr. Church, how are you doing, sir? Very good. Thank you very much. Excellent. So why don't you tell, tell us, tell our, my listeners for just in a few words, um, what motivated you to write this book? And in your words, in your opinion, what exactly does white fragility mean? Uh, well, the uh, impetus for the book came, um, I guess, uh, August 2018, um, although I didn't think about writing a book at the time. Uh, I was writing weekly, weekly columns for the Good Med Project, and it's a pretty progressive outlet, um, writes a lot of stuff on social justice issues. And um, I wouldn't say that I'm a social justice warrior, but there are various um, issues in social justice that you know I support, and there's other issues that I'm a little bit more skeptical of. And so, you know, I'd be, I was writing various articles, some in support and some in, not in support. And uh, one article in particular I wrote was um, expressing concern about a tendency for confirmation bias among social justice activists. Um, and so I sent that article to someone in, in my family who's very active in social justice uh, circles. And the response I got was essentially, why do you always get worked up when issues like white privilege and other stuff come up? Um, which I don't, because I had already written a few articles at that point, um, uh, laying out a Bayesian conception of white privilege, but basically saying, you know, there is a, lay, a there there, though, um, and in, line with sort of confirmation bias, you have to be very cautious about, you know, not over applying it. But at any rate, um, there was a pushback that says, why are you so fragile? And, um, you know, I tried to essentially, you know, argue in good faith and um, try to describe my critique, but there really wasn't any good faith engagement coming from the other side. It was always, why are you so fragile, you know, and so on. Um, so essentially what you have is probably what everybody recognizes as the funda you know, at least the, the first fundamental problem with white fragility that strikes everyone is that it's a Kafka trap, which is that, you know, you can't really get out of the trap of being um, labeled as fragile for raising any kind of question about, the, about white fragility in 
theory in general with social justice activism in, 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 um, and in if general. I, if I might add, that, that kind of goes into its unfalsifiability. Unfalsifiability, sorry, that's a very yeah, well, yeah. Armor. unfalsifiability. Not, yeah. yeah, I have a bit of a, a slight stutter, so I can, I can sympathize. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, that's right. That's it's the falsification principle. Um, so at any rate, uh, obviously that was frustrating, and so I started looking into the theory. Um, and a couple of weeks later, I published uh, my first article on it, Quillette, um, the problem with white fragility theory, um, and essentially laying that laying out that case, but also uh, um, invoking some of the literature on implicit bias, saying that. Uh, you know, one of the core premises of white fragility theory is um, that of implicit bias, and, and uh, apparently there's a whole second generation of research that's come out, sort of really called into question the whole paradigm. Anyway, that was what the article was about. But um, curiosity kills a cat. I kept investigating and wrote another uh, fairly lengthy essay in December 2018, followed very quickly by another, analyzing her uh, take on a Jeopardy episode as illustrating white uh, racial illiteracy. And over, you know, over the next couple of years, uh, just generated a series of essays. Um, and uh, earlier this year, I um, started thinking about putting it together into a book um, and, uh, and just got a bit of luck um, through a contract, a contract contact who uh, uh, connected me with uh, Roman Littlefield and they were interested. Uh, in fact, it was Chris Pasley, who's also got a book uh, coming out. Um, so both our books being published by Roman and Littlefield. Um, so those are two books coming out, Critiquing White Fragility. Um, and so that's how I uh, arrived at the writing of a book. Um, and so essentially, I, I essentially assembled a lot of my critiques and, and amplified and, and fleshed it out and added and tried to create as rigorous and com comprehensive a critique. Um, as I could in the book, and now it's finished, uh, it's been submitted, it's in production or in press, I guess, um, tentatively uh, scheduled for January um, uh, publication. So, um, white fertility, uh, I guess the way to start is really just to quote, quote directly from uh, Delangelo. Um, everybody's probably heard this by now, uh, and she describes it as a state in which even a minimum uh, amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of, quote, of uh, defensive moves, uh, including the outward uh, display of emotions such as anger, fear, guilt, um, behaviors like argumentation, silence, leaving the stress-inducing situation, um, all of which firing uh, a wide gamut of reactions, anything from fear to just shutting up uh, to leaving. Um, and uh, that's from her 2011 seminal paper, uh, International Journal of Critical Pedagogy. But it actually uh, first shows up, and it might even show up before this, but it first shows up in her 2004 um, PhD dissertation, as far as I'm aware of. Um, in which she does this long analysis of two-hour sessions of interracial dialogue, and she describes situations like this. And in fact, in my opinion, most of her subsequent academic work, activist work, virtually everything she does, 
really is foreseen in the dissertation. It's just an extension of our dissertation. And it's these, um, these uh, talks and dialogues and everything that she conducts as a facilitator or as a mediator, that's what she does. And now she is, you know, sort of uh, converted into a full-time business, I guess you could say, as the more cynical people would say that it's all business. Um, but uh, white fragility for her is she goes into a room and she has an idea of what systemic racism or what racism is and how whiteness keeps it in place. And she wants to explain to her audience how that works. And when anybody gets a little defensive or skeptical or, I don't know, outraged or whatever, um, for her, they're exhibiting white fragility. And that's essentially what she means by white fragility. Um, I could go on and on, but I mean, that's essentially, uh, I think what everybody now understands as, un as what, as her and, central idea. And, and, and to be clear here, these emotions, this rage, this frustration that is brought about through the discussion of race, she is particularizing and aiming her target, her analysis, particularly at a white individual's expression of those emotions. When in all reality, those emotions, everyone experiences them, everyone feels them, everyone expresses them. So she's really operating within this construct that she's made that particularizes and consigns these emotions to white people as a sort of villainization tactic almost. Why do you think she's doing this? Why do you, if you can divine sort of the, the reason, and uh, as a sort of addendum to this question, would you say, and we're going to get into this a little bit more later, uh, this is reflective of a key facet of critical race theory, which D'Angelo willed like a great sword throughout the duration of this work. Um, so before I directly address the question, hopefully I won't forget exactly the exact words, but um, uh, I think I smiled, but you, um, you said exactly the Point that I was that I was making in the first essay I wrote for Colette, which is that this is um, supposed to be a white thing, but it's actually a really kind of um, human, universal thing. In other words, psychological defense mechanisms are pretty common in human nature. Um, so uh, those types of emotional reactions are just totally not to be, you know, are not totally not unexpected. Is that, did I say that correctly? Um, so yeah, uh, that's the first thing that strikes us. I mean, it's not that deep, it's not that profound, but she wants to essentially um, uh, incorporate this into um, a critical race theory uh, um, paradigm or framework for understanding how racism works. And, and explain um, to folks, if you could, in your analysis, what a what critical race theory is, because it's, it's very archaic to many, not archaic, it's very unknown and esoteric to many folks. Uh, but it is a very yeah. powerful cultural constant in America. So if you could explain well, what exactly we mean when we say that. Yeah. Um, so I'm tempted to just kind of boil it down to a few words, but I feel like that would maybe shortchange it a little bit. That's but all right. I also, but, I, but I don't want to go on too long. But uh, maybe the best way to think about is, um, is first to, to invoke its heritage in um, – People like Derek, Derek, Derek Bell, and uh, I believe Patricia Hill Collins, and 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 Kimberly Kem Crenshaw, and so on. Um, the uh, so the point being that it comes out of a 
a critical legal theory tradition. Um, it, was, it was basically developed by lawyers, people with who were looking at legal institutions and trying to critique them in a new way, um, unique to understanding how uh, racial inequality um, persists within our uh, ongoing institutions, in particular legal institutions. Um, the word critical uh, comes, goes back a little bit farther, or back maybe a half, half century farther to the Frankfurt, Frankfurt School, who uh, uh, were a, a group of uh, German philosophers immigrated to the U or emigrated to the U.S. In, uh, the, during World War II. Um, and uh, they set up the Institute for Social Research. I think that's what it's called. Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, Herbert Marcuse, people that became affiliated with the new left. And they were essentially interested in critiquing society. They were neo-Marxists um, uh, with a specific focus on critiquing capitalism and uh, things like false consciousness, ideology, um, class structure and all that. Those are sort of concepts that were important to them. Um, so that's sort of where critical theory originally comes from, but um, it then sort of takes on different, uh, it branches off in a lot of different ways um, throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and critical race theory is one of those branches. Um, and, you know, it's, it's fairly complicated uh, when you try to thread all, of, or put together all the various right. threads. Would you, um, would you say a, a good, but, yeah, sorry. Or would you say a uh, good, yeah, sorry, go on. Go on. Go ahead. Yeah, would you say a good explanation of critical race theory, like if you're just going to boil it down and make it very compact would be, it is an idea of analyzing society primarily, through, and so particularly society and social relations, primarily through the lens of race with a sort of de destruction, deconstructionist idea, which means to tear down everything, to tear down uh, institutions, to tear down broader ideas and to boil it down indeed to race. Not only is race the lens, but it is also the end result as well. Yeah, so if you really want to boil it down, it's about power and privilege. Um, that, uh, you know, essentially all of uh, racial inequality, anything that you want to talk about in terms of knowledge, in terms of uh, how we understand race. Uh, so, yeah, it is through the, the lens of race, but essentially in, term, in, tr in trying to understand race um, and in trying to understand racial inequality, um, that you have to understand it as a uh, social construct and that um, it is not something that is, um, uh, so race is not some kind of, you know, essentialist had a, bi a biological category, but it's constructed through institutions and the way we interact with each other and so on through, you know, ideologies and more particularly even uh, discourse as, as we sort of move forward. But it's about power and privilege. Every, everything that we talk about, everything in society, um, our positions and, you know, positionality is a key word. Uh, how we function in society is inevitably filtered through power and privilege. And when you talk about that's critical theory. Um, and we talk about critical, critical race theory, it's power and privilege as opposed, as applied to race. Uh, mm -hmm. So when you mentioned deconstruction, um, deconstruction actually has a sort of very precise meaning in the philosophical sense, which is that um, everything's built on hierarchies. So you can't say underprivileged without implicitly referring to privileged. Uh, you can't, 
you can't refer to uh, words are they're, they're, words are always def defined by their difference from other words, and that um, you have essentially conceptual bound bi binaries: black, white, privileged, un underprivileged, so on. And that within these bi binaries are inherent are built are built-in hierarchies. So white at the top, black at the at the bottom, privilege at the top, underprivileged. You know, this is some sense drawing on um, queer theory as well, ideas about uh, normativity. But yeah, critical theory, critical theory is about uh, analyzing social structure and particularly with an eye towards um, diagnosing domination and, and oppression and marginalization. Critical race theory is the same thing as applies specifically to race. And so how does D'Angelo will these things in her construction of the word whiteness and her imposition upon all white folks, these nasty qualities she, pro she proclaims they have whenever a discussion about race is, uh, is imminent? Yeah, so the way white whiteness factors into white, white or critical race theory is that, um, is that whiteness is essentially the scaffold on which um, oppression and marginalization are built. Um, so, uh, when we talk about, uh, yeah, um, so whiteness is just the idea that uh, the structures of um, domination and, and marginalization or the, the social structures which uh, uh, institute or keep in place um, inequality, you know, oppression, marginalization, um, uh, uh, Whiteness is those the set of ideologies, uh, discourses um, that keep that all, all that in place. Um, so uh, we want to flesh out what whiteness is, but um, if there's a sort of takeaway um, phrase or whatever. Uh, whiteness um, is a core focus of critical race theory in the sense that whiteness is what keeps it all together white supremacy, racial inequality, and so on. So then the question is, what is whiteness? Um, and this is, in some sense, a question that, uh, as, as I argue, but I think whiteness scholars themselves would probably agree to some extent, is really not fully or well-defined. Um, uh, it's more of a, an object of critique as opposed to a well-specified, well-defined concept. Um, but so it's, it's really about the, 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 um, the technique, I guess, the, the, the uh, approach. And the issue is, and this is perhaps why white fragility is ultimately so divisive. divisive. In fact, that's what I'll ultimately argue, is that, um, you have this idea that white people talk in certain ways and interact in certain ways and just go about living their um, everyday lives. And virtually every aspect, you get direct quotes from many people on this, um, pretty much every aspect of that, uh, of their lives is in some central or roundabout way keeping uh, racial inequality in place. Um, and so whiteness studies is saying that in order to understand racism and racial inequality, we no longer have to focus on racism as a, as a problem for non-white people. We have to focus on racism as a problem for white people. And that it's no longer 
trying to just simply um, widen the circle of inclusion, inclusion uh, bring, uh, you know, advocate for diversity, inclusion, whatever, but white people themselves have to think about what it means to be white and inevitably in ways that what it means to be white contributes to racial inequality. And that means how we think, how we think, and that's where implicit bias comes in. Uh, that's where uh, discourse comes in. That's where uh, ideology comes in. So in that sense, it's drawing on the sort of neo-Marxian tradition of Gramsci and whatever, cultural hegemony, um, Hegemony meaning power, correct? Hegemony meaning power. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Um, so, I mean, critical race theory, strictly speaking, is a break a break from Marx, just like postmodernism, whatever. But it is nevertheless carrying on the tradition of social critique and with a focus on sort of this sort of false consciousness, whereas Marx is talking in some sense about the false consciousness of the oppressed. Whiteness studies wants to shift the focus on the quote-unquote false consciousness of the oppressor, oppressors. And so they getting, assume that all the oppressors or the oppressors themselves, their defining quality is their whiteness, basically. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so that's that's what whiteness says is about. It's really like James, Bald, James Baldwin, uh, I think he wrote something called The Price of the D Ticket, and you can understand that as saying that the price of a ticket into America is, is whiteness and sort of being able to adapt to, you know, and so when we're talking about the past, you know, 19th century, even much of the 20th century, you know, where racism is a real issue in terms of how we traditionally understand it, as D'Angelo would say, the good, bad, binary, you know, that it's about prejudicial acts against people. Um, you know, that's when, you know, we're really talking about real, real um, racism. And, um, but now, uh, that is, in D'Angelo's view and others, um, it's uh, really quite something, but that right. is more of an adaptation of racism. In other words, to think about racism in that way is to further uh, reify, quote unquote, uh, racism, because it obscures the so-called, you know, the so-called, the, the systemic nature of it. So that, but I'm sort of leading us towards the, the reification fallacy, which I see as the, the core problem. Um, yeah, and, and for just real quick, define reify for my audience. Yep. Uh, so reification uh, is probably best. I mean, it's the idea that an abstraction cannot be taken on or an appear material. You know, um, oh, there was this nice phrase that uh, Helen Clockwell's. Uh, um, but anyway, it's the idea of an abstraction cannot take on material existence. Um, so, um, right. So this idea that this broad idea, this idea that's up there somewhere up in the ether of ideaism, cannot come down and be manifest in reality, basically. Yeah. Um, so uh, another way, another rephrasing of the um, reification fallacy is the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. concreteness. Now, one of my favorite phrases from the show Mad Men was when Don Draper says, the universe is indifferent. Um, so the universe is this, you know, abstract idea of, you know, the cosmos and whatever. And um, it's literally not true that the universe can be indifferent about anything. That's just personify the universe. Um, now, metaphorically, and this is sort of why you have to be, you know, you have to be, um, 
you have to explain this carefully and, and, and acknowledge a few things, which is that metaphorically, it makes sense. And that's why people use it. You know, we say that the universe is indifferent. We kind of have some intuitive grasp of what Don Draper was saying. And when we say, you know, whiteness is, um, is uh, percolating through our institutions and, and affecting how people think and whatever, we have some idea metaphorically of what's being said. But logically speaking, it's fallacious. It's just not, that's just, it does, uh, it, um, you know, it's just wrong to argue that. Now, I guess you could say, why is that the case? Well, we've already been saying so by zooming in, uh, no pen and pun intended there, um, on um, the idea that it's very hard to define what whiteness actually is. So what we kind of have is a problem of uh, identifying what we call in statistics, false positives and false negatives. The, the confirmation bias is the idea. So um, best uh, uh, way, and I quote him a lot, even though it's only one sentence, but there's a labor historian, Eric Arsener or whatever. Um, and he said that, you know, essentially whiteness becomes a blank screen onto which we project whatever it is that we see as whiteness, you know, um, and I'm paraphrasing him. Uh, in other words, it's ambiguous. And so uh, when we say that whiteness is just, in fact, why don't I just quote D'Angelo here? Um, so for, for D'Angelo, whiteness is conceptualized as a constellation of processes and, pro and practices rather than as a discrete entity. Whiteness is dy dynamic, relational, and operating at all times and on myriad levels. These processes and pro practices include basic rights, values, beliefs, perspectives, and experiences and so on and so forth. Um, so the, uh, the issue is that whiteness is kind of like a, um, a, a standpoint, it's a, it's a positionality and it's defined by the way the people at the center, white people think and act. Yeah, that, the, the reification idea is that this abstract notion of whiteness consisting of positionality, ideology, discourse, and whatever is kind of lurking around uh, as a concrete personification or a concrete thing that's kind of whispering into the ears of white people thinking telling them to act and 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 talk in certain ways that reinforce our um uh racial inequality and that that's just real logically fallacious even if it's metaphorically um vivid but where it really becomes a problem is if we really don't have a, a very clearly specified notion of whiteness we run into the fallacy of ambiguity and the fallacy of ambiguity is when you have an argument, syllogism of some sort, premise leads to the conclusion, and the premise is, has some kind of term, has some term that's ill-defined. In this case, it would be whiteness. So for critical race theory, whiteness scholars in particular, and they say whiteness is the scaffold on which all of racial inequality is built, we're saying that um, whiteness leads to um, or sustains racial inequality. But if whiteness is ill-defined, then you have a problem in the premise. You have a fallacy of ambiguity. Um, I'll talk about, I talk about that in the book. But that, I, that strikes me as the, 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 for, the core challenge, um, uh, shortcoming, if you will, yeah. of whiteness so, studies. So yeah, yeah, and so basically this idea of whiteness as, as 
brought forth by D'Angelo basically says that whiteness is this all-encompassing force which surrounds and subsumes everything within it. And so this is part of the problem. This is, of course, this, you, you bring out a lot of, uh, there's a lot of logical problems with this, obviously. With also a sort of like metaphysical grand, grand problem, in my opinion, as well. It's reducing all of reality to a singular quality that is inactive. Whiteness, whatever it is, I, and from what I see, whiteness is a color. And whiteness, and, and she, of course, she says it's more than that. It's a social sort of action. But whiteness itself, in all reality, is merely a color. It's a complexion. It is inactive in and of itself. There are individuals. There are individuals who happen to be white. But there is no, you know, sort of like animate being that is whiteness. And so she is making sort of ontological and a metaphysical sort of fallacy here by saying that whiteness literally subsumes and consumes everything and not giving credit or giving credence to anything else that may be affecting what she's actually talking about. Your thoughts? Yeah, uh, monocausality is a real big problem in all the um, omitted variable bias and whatever. But the idea is that. Um, uh, whiteness um, becomes the, the be-all and end-all of, uh, of the story. Um, and that, um, and this is a problem with Kendi um, as well, uh, but it's almost very um, circular in a sense. It's um, tautological. Uh, so for instance, um, in her um, seminal paper, she writes that whiteness studies begin with the premise that racism and white privilege exist in both traditional and modern forms. And rather than work to prove its existence, work to reveal it. So that um, uh, sentence is essentially saying that, um, uh, you know, racism is a function of, of whiteness, uh, white privilege, and that's what you start with as the premise. And then we're gonna go about um, just trying to uh, reveal it. And that the, another way of saying that, which comes up in a lot of, in, in D'Angelo's work um, and in statements that she's written with other people is that the question is not, did racism, racism manifest itself, but how did it manifest in this situation? Um, so tautology is one way that, one word that comes to, to mind. Um, in all this, uh, we just assume that racism is there and, and, and whiteness is everywhere and anywhere. Um, and for them, that means we have to go and peek it out. For me, that just means that it sort of lo lost its meaning. Um, but yeah, it's this all encompassing um, uh, abstraction that's supposed to be walking around in every aspect of society, which is, you know, just kind of. It's, it's, it's ridiculous is what it is yeah, nonsense. <laughs> I, I was gonna say nonsensical but you know I, I I mean so I I do try to be um fair I'm gonna get up one more time so now I can pull up the blinds because but you know I didn't want uh I I try to be fair I mean um you know yeah. I, I yeah I try absolutely. to give yeah go ahead uh, I think the sort of the height of intellectualism and the height of intellectual honesty and philosophical discourse is listening to the other person. And as the great Roger Scruton once said, trying to embody the sort of perspectives and the life of the other person in a temporal moment and then pushing all that stuff out and interpreting it within your mind, within your experience in accordance to something that's higher than yourself, reason or what have you. Uh, as Kant would say, there's nothing higher than reason in his opinion. And so I, I think that that is what animates me and what drives me. But nonsense is nonsense. <laughs> and so, and, and in my opinion, 
D'Angelo and her theories are just the height of nonsense. So wait, talk, let's talk about, we, we gotta, we gotta wrap up a little bit here because we're going over time a little bit. Let's talk about white privilege though. What does D'Angelo say about white privilege and what are your arguments against what her, she says about white privilege? I think that when you, the problem I would say with the white privilege paradigm is again, the monocausality is the extent to which, um, and, and also you also get into it problems of re reverse causation. You know, I mean, uh, is something within society causing white privilege or is white privilege, white privilege causing um, the, the inequality? So, you know, is white privilege a, a function of inequality or a cause of, um, uh, inequality and and you know you'd have to you know, I don't want to go on too too long but you have to unpack that and all that but the the, the short answer is I mean I think you get with D'Angelo it's it's the problem of monocausality that white privilege is everything and anything just like whiteness um, or as an extension of whiteness and for me um, you just have to be you know you have to think very very carefully about any particular issue I mean every issue. If you're a true scholar, if you're somebody in an academic position trying to make a career out of a research question, you know how complex it is, how complex a task it is to formulate, just simply formulate a hypothesis to come up with a specific question from all the mountains of chaos and noise out there to come up with a question that really concretes or concretely addresses a problem. That in itself is an enormous undertaking. And then to go out, go about trying to methodologically address, you know, like white flight, for instance. Um, there's great research by Leah Boussan, Boussan, if I got that correctly, or the pronunciation at Princeton, um, who looks at white flight. And, you know, for, for D'Angelo, she says in her book, it's, you know, all residential segregation is explained by white flight. Um, so in other words, just white people are not wanting to be around non-white people. Um, Busan or Leah Buscan does did some real extensive research on this and says, you know, she 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 um, quantifies the number of uh, white um, people who uh, migrated to the, the suburbs suburbs per uh, uh, black migrant to the northern cities and so on. And but for her, I mean, yes, some of this was a function of aversion to diversity. Some of it was essentially socioeconomic and a lot of migrants were going from all white communities to other wall, wall, all white communities and it wasn't simply that there were more non-white people in that community and they just they moved out so anyway the point is it's very complicated and when you address these really complicated socialist issues of recent inequality i mean you have to you just have to recognize that these are extremely multi-dimensional problems and that they, they don't now come down to simply reify whiteness or white privilege. I mean, that's really where I'm coming from. All right, excellent. Yes, very good analysis. Well, Mr. Church, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us, talking to me. I appreciate your perspectives. And uh, where can people get your book when it's available? Well, uh, Amazon for sure. Um, there's uh, also the Roman Littlefield website. Um, I guess those are the two major um, places you want to go. Um, and then, you know, wherever they are, wherever it is in big bookstores, but I haven't gotten to the point where, um, where that is. Uh, and yeah, um, sorry if I would just go on at length. I can talk about this all day long. Um, so, uh, that's why you're writing about it. And that's why I'm happy to have a great mind like you on this show. All right, guys. Yeah, oh, sorry, go on. 
No, just uh, I appreciate the comment. Uh, same to you, and uh, and I'm glad that you brought up Roger Scruton too, because I the name that I'm starting to become more familiar with. Uh, but anyway, yes. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. He's one of the, and I'm, I am a more right-wing libertarian with some conservative sensibilities, but even from my disposition, I can appreciate that he is one of the greatest contemporary conservative minds, perhaps barring Russell Kerr. And Oh, I, I did read your uh, article for the Foundation of Economics and Education, I think. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, on the hate crime, hate crime um, legislation in Georgia. Oh, yes, what do you think about that? Very. That was a very good analysis because, um, uh, yeah, I mean, um, uh, I mean, again, I don't want to take up your time here, but uh, no, uh, absolutely not. It, no, come on. It, 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 it certainly is a reasonable question to ask whether, you know, because of the subjectivity behind, uh, you know, what constitutes a hate crime and whatever versus more objective uh, issue of, you know, let's apprehend somebody and prosecute them. The, the person who's responsible and, you know, in other words, I'm much more concerned about uh, somebody not lighting up my house on fire than I am about whether he does though with a Nazi flag or, or something. Precisely, precisely. Yeah. It's the uh, issue of materialization over, over abstraction, yeah. so to speak. That's really, exactly. when you say that people, people, people get nervous and they're like, what do you mean? And, and, but so I uh, thank you for, I, I you know, I, writing is taking a little bit of a backseat in my career. This podcast is more, but as time goes on, I'm going to keep writing more because I think that the written word is very important for the exhibition of ideas. Uh, if we didn't have the written word, philosophy would be incomplete, I think. The history of philosophy would be incomplete. So uh, thank you so right, much, well, Mr. Thank you Church. Again. Absolutely. And everyone, all of you, please indeed subscribe wherever you are, YouTube, podcast, whatever. Uh, but until next time, please stay pensive.